Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Daybreak, the show where fun ideas and occupations come to life. We're your hosts, Pippa Schrader and Bryn Campbell, and today we will share an inspirational quote, interview Bella Daly Steele, a freelance journalist and writer, and after announcement break, we will end this episode as a tale of an awesome orchestra made up of typewriters. Now, let's get on with the show. This is your co-host, Bryn Campbell, and now it is time for our weekly quote to inspire you and get you thinking. This week's quote is from Jeff Goins, an author. He said, write something that's worth fighting over because that's how you change things. That's how you create art. Thank you, Jeff Goins, for that wonderful quote. I'm sure it gave us all something to think about. Now, let's get on with the show. Now, it's time for us to learn more about journalism and writing with Bella Daly Steele, a freelance journalist and writer. Hi, Bella. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. How about you? Pretty good. Glad to be here. Awesome. So you're in France right now, right? I am. I'm uh, in a small town called Biscarros. It's a surf town near Bordeaux in the south of France. Cool. What is that like? It's interesting. Usually Biscarros is really, really busy this time of year because yeah. it's a vacation town. But because of coronavirus, it's it's pretty dead, which is a strange thing to experience. Yeah, that definitely, yeah. Um, so uh, let's get started with some of our questions. So what's a typical day in your life look like right now? Uh, it really varies for me. So since coronavirus started, I mm-hmm. stopped my teaching job and I've gone full time for freelance writing, um, which means that I make my own schedule, which is both very fun and kind of dangerous. Um, so now I wake up between like 9 and 11 a.m., which is pretty hedonistic. And then I go for a walk and then work for the rest of the day. But freelancing is interesting in that my work isn't always writing or reporting. Most of it is actually me emailing editors, begging them to let me write for them. And then following up with people, making sure that I'm not making horrible mistakes in my articles. Yeah, so um, what is that like? Is there a certain way that you can keep yourself going if you get rejected by someone or if they say maybe this is not the best time for your article to be published? That's actually, that's a really good question because that's one of the hardest things because you get, most of the time you don't even get rejected. You just get ghosted, I guess would be the word. An editor just doesn't reply to you, especially if you send them a pitch out of nowhere, if you don't know them personally. And it can get really disheartening. What I found is really helpful is that I've begun writing uh, co-byline stories, which is when I work with one or two other reporters to write a story. And that means that we can kind of bolster each other when we're having down days. So if we get a rejection on the story, my partner can be like, no, that's okay, don't worry about it. And then the next day I'll be the positive one and she can be down in the dumps, but we can float each other. Yeah, that's really cool. So um, sort of digging into that a little bit more. So like you were talking about um, how, like, how do you get an article with like different co- or different workers with y- yourself? Like how do you find those different people? 
That's okay. So that's one of the biggest and most important things I think in freelancing is finding a community. Yes. Uh, personally, I found community through, I guess you would call it an email list serve. It's called mm-hmm. study hall. Um, and I really don't know how to describe it. It's, I think literally hundreds, maybe thousands of maybe not thousands, but of freelancers who email each other questions and advice and opportunities. Um, and you meet people that way. So someone will send out an article saying, hey, can everyone retweet this? I just published it. And if you read it, you can just reach out to them and say, hey, I really like your work and you can make friends that way. Um, I found my reporting partner, Ruth Terry, because she started a different like Slack channel. Slack is a workplace messaging app mm-hmm. for people who are struggling um, during coronavirus because of anxiety or depression co- coinciding with the virus. Um, and then we started working together. So I think finding groups is the best way to find a reporting partner. Yeah. So how long have you had this job? How long have you like been like a writer, reporter, and teacher, right? Yeah. Um, kind of differs. Uh, I started reporting my sophomore year in college nice, for yeah. my school magazine. Um, but then it was mostly off and on. I didn't get paid for that job. Then I had, you know, a smattering of internships. And then when I graduated college, uh, I took a job as an English language teaching assistant in France. Um, so I only did that for about six or seven months before coronavirus hit. And I started freelancing full time about three months ago okay cool so on different note who is one of your role models Mm, uh there's so many uh professionally or personally it can be either okay um i mean personally definitely my mom um she's always encouraged me uh to follow my creative endeavors uh which is really important I think especially during this day and age when there's an emphasis on pursuing non-creative uh fields um and then professionally um my friend Cleo uh Krecky she was my most recent editor at the Minnesota Daily and she always she's just an amazing editor and an amazing editor makes an amazing writer so Mm. it's always great to see her work um And then um, more of an acquaintance, but another reporter slash editor that I met last summer who works for NBC, Doreen Imam, she's just one of the best editors I've ever met, always sticks up for her team, which is something that I think is overlooked a lot in journalism. Editors need to defend their team and their team's beliefs to the managing editor, and that can decide what stories go to print, the angles on them, and she does an amazing job of that. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, um, how does like what is a general? I don't know. Like, what was what would be the word for it? Like, there's the editor, and then there's you said like the, and the team. Like, how would, I guess, how do those different jobs relate to each other in like status? Like, how does that work? How does like a journey of an article go? I guess. Oh, it's really one of those situations where you really don't want to see how the sausage gets made. It's not very pretty. <laughs> Um, unless you're at a very fancy outlet and perhaps even worse there. Um, in terms of if you're in a newsroom, if you're a staff reporter, which mm-hmm. is someone like employed rather than yeah. someone like me, okay. freelancer, you have the reporters, 
um, and the photojournalists who work together generally to report and photograph the story. Yeah. And then have the immediate desk editor or section editor. So that would be um, if you have a group of five people on a team who cover health, that would be the health editor or the um, justice and uh, public safety editor. So it's grouped like that. And then above that editor, you have usually the managing editor. And then above that, you have the editor-in-chief. And the editor-in-chief decides what kind of content you want to put out. And the managing editor runs around desperately trying to get all of the coverage to fit together correctly. That that uh, that sounds like a really really hard thing to do, especially as a managing editor and a reporter for you know having your work go through so many different phases and stuff. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so does this happen with every article that you see published, or does it happen with just the bigger ones? Uh, it depends on the outlet. Uh, also, that structure changes from organization to organization. Mm-hmm. The bigger the outlet, the more levels of the hierarchy I guess there are um I've never been a staff reporter at a big outlet um and then when it comes to freelancing it's even a little bit more ambiguous so you have the freelancers the editor that they work with and then any of the hierarchies above that um and for me as a freelancer it all depends on the outlet so I have some places where I work with my editor very closely and we work in a Google Doc, and my draft just evolves over time. And then there are other editors where you'll turn in a draft, mm-hmm. and then two weeks later you check the website and you find out that they've edited it, posted it, and didn't tell you. Whoa. And you're like, all right, got to read through, make sure <laughs> everything's okay. Yeah. So what's the article or piece of work that you are most proud of? Um... I think I'd have to say there's an article I wrote actually the first year that I was reporting um, for the Minnesota Daily, which is the University of Minnesota's uh, student newspaper. Yeah. My first editor had told me that he really wanted to cover the Washington Avenue Bridge, which is a bridge in the middle of campus because the University of Minnesota straddles the Mississippi River and you need uh, to go across the bridge to get to one side of the campus. Um, And for, I guess, obvious reasons, uh, it tends to be a site for um, potential self-harm. And he really wanted to cover that because it was a big issue that was going untalked about at the university. But that's a very, self-harm is a very delicate subject. Um, And journalism doesn't have a very good history of covering delicate subjects thoughtfully and respectfully. Um, And I think I I ended up covering it through a different lens than we originally thought. Um, And I think I did it quite respectfully. Um, And the fact that I never had any sources or readers write to me upset proved to me that I think I did it well. Wow, yeah, that that is definitely a hard thing to talk about. I mean, just talking about it, but then writing about it, you know, you, you you don't get the tones of voice and, like, facial expressions or, you know... So I can yeah. see how that that would be something you can be very proud of, yeah. 
So, I understand that you've been writing for companies like the BBC and the State Journal, the State of Wisconsin, um, and more. So, tell me what that experience has been like for you. It's been a really interesting experience. Um, I think working as a freelancer right out of college rather than a staff reporter has given me the opportunity to observe what kind of newsrooms I might want to work in later on and even whether or not I'd want to work in a newsroom rather than be freelance later on. Um, I've really enjoyed freelancing. Like I said, I get to make my own schedule and the fact that I can come up with a story and go, I really want to find a good home for this Mm -hmm. that might not necessarily be the outlet that I usually work for has been really revealing. So it's been a refreshing, exciting new experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how is it that different companies have, like, do they have, like, different ways of going about things? Like, we were talking about the whole process that an article goes through. So is it maybe different with the BBC than the State Journal or, you know, so on? It really is. Uh, like I said, it depends on size and culture. Um, like many fields right now, journalism is going through a lot of changes. Um, yeah. A ton of staff reporters are being fired because of COVID. There's not enough money. Um, On top of that, a bunch of uh, outlets are shutting. And then on top of that, there's kind of a reckoning going on. Journalism, like most professions, is dominated by white men um, and white women to a pretty great extent as well. Mm -hmm. So outlets are trying to fix those problems or deny those problems, deny that they exist. Um, (laughs) And working in that space Mm -hmm. and in this particular time Mm -hmm. is really interesting because you, you see those inner workings that we were talking about at good quote, good outlets. You're seeing white editors and male editors step down and ushering in a new generation of editors who are doing an amazing job. And in the, quote, bad outlets, you're not seeing those changes taking place, and you're seeing less communication, bad communication when it does happen, and more or less editors exploiting freelancers. Mm, It's weird. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So this question also has to sort of do what you were just talking about. How has your job changed due to COVID-19 and the BLM protests? Oh, wow. So much. Um, So before COVID-19, I had only freelanced like twice before. I had Mm -hmm. written, I was writing regularly for Ms. Magazine and writing once or twice for this one publication called Culture Trip. Uh, But I hadn't been doing much because I had been working uh, my part-time job as a teaching assistant. So (laughs) COVID-19 gave me a special opportunity to freelance because Mm -hmm. the French government continues to pay me for my teaching job, even though I can't do it. So I had a stable source of income. And then on top of that, I could dedicate time to freelancing. So it actually kind of launched my freelance career, which is really nice. Uh, but then with the BLM protests, I've actually taken about three weeks off um, because as a white person who was not very involved with BLM before at all, I wasn't involved at all except for by lip servicing that I supported the movement. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to take some time to 
educate myself on anti-racism mm, uh, mm. and that means taking a break from freelancing yeah definitely that's, that's a really good thing to do in this time I mean anything you can do to either learn more about BLM or I mean a lot of people already know about COVID-19 so I think maybe learning more about the protests would be even more beneficiary at this time or beneficent um but you know, I, I definitely commend you for that, yeah, and it's something that everyone should be able to do during this time, because we, some people have a lot of free time, and it's good to, you know, use it in ways like you're doing. Um, So, did anyone in your family inspire you to choose this, um, like, profession that you're doing right now? Um, I think my family's a very creative family. Um, my mom, you know, her, she's very, um, a very talented visual artist. Uh, my dad's a very talented musician. No one was particularly like, you have to write. But I think the fact that my family really enjoys the liberal arts and supports the arts uh, made it feel like a feasible profession for me. Yeah, yeah. Have you traveled anywhere else for journalism? If so, where? Um... I haven't traveled to like different cities or countries for journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, usually it's just like a, a maximum of like an hour drive yeah, to yeah. interesting location. Uh, probably the most interesting place I went was, okay, so when I was studying in South Korea, I wrote sometimes for the school magazine. Um, and in South Korea, there's a lot of interesting laws around tattooing. Uh, basically, mm -hmm. you can't be a tattoo artist unless you have a medical degree. Oh. Medical degrees are very, very intensive. Yeah. Um, and while tattooing is, like, you, you need to be trained, it doesn't make sense, really, to go to school for medicine to become a tattoo artist. So there's a big underground economy um, of illegal tattoo artists. So I went to a neighborhood that was like half an hour from my living neighborhood to do that um to do an interview with a tattoo artist yeah that's that's really cool and how you were talking about so you lived in korea for a little bit or south korea you said yeah yeah i studied there for about i think five months maybe in college okay wow so what was what was that like it it was so awesome um it was a little difficult because i'm very bad at korean and i had never studied it before um highly suggest studying a language before going to a country where that language is spoken otherwise yeah. uh you set yourself up for a lot of difficulties but it was an amazing experience um and i really valued it yeah yeah totally so um as well as so you've gone to South Korea, you've gone to France, and then you were, were you born in Wisconsin or just? Yeah, I think, uh, I say I think. Um, <laughs> I was born in Madison or just outside of Madison. Uh, my mom would know this. Oh, I need to get it right. Uh, but yeah, I was born in Wisconsin, grew up in Wisconsin, Madison girl, born and raised. Yeah, awesome. So um, while working, have you ever had to do something that really pushed you outside of your comfort zone? Yeah, I think so. Um, so we were talking about, and I'm sorry to get into the weeds of a lot of this, but oh, it's no. really interesting to me. It, it is really interesting um, to me too, yeah. In terms of the dynamics between the different actors in a newsroom, mostly yeah, yeah. between the main editor 
and the reporter is that reporters have a duty to protect their sources, but also to protect the integrity of the story. So you can't let the story be biased towards a source, but you also can't let your need for objectivity, uh, because journalists are obsessed with objectivity, even though we can't really attain it. Um, you can't let that balance be lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes the only way you can find that balance is by you defending a source's point of view and your editor kind of arguing with you and defending this nebulous idea of objectivity. So you're constantly kind of arguing and fighting with your editor. I think that's why in popular culture, we always see editors and reporters getting into fights uh, because that's kind of how it needs to work in order to get a more balanced story to publication. Mm. And then editors have to do the same thing with the managing editors and fight for their reporter stories. It's an interesting line of arguments. So that means that there's a lot of tension, obviously, in your relationships with editors. And most recently, um, I just published an article with my reporting partner um, at a certain travel site. And that particular travel site, uh, like a week after our article got published, Mm -hmm. um, just blew up on social media because basically their newsroom bullied their one Black editor so badly that she had to resign um so my reporting partner and I are now in a situation where we need to figure out what our role is in standing up to the publication because we're freelancers we're not staffers so we don't have Mm. a direct impact um but I know that my reporting partner had another story she was going to write for them and she pulled it she said she didn't want to work with them again um yeah so it's definitely outside of one's comfort zone to have to go to an editor that usually you beg to publish your stories and say, hey, you need to make some big decisions. Otherwise, I, the tiny ant reporter, won't work with you anymore. Yeah, yeah. That, that, is, that is really hard. And, um, yeah, sometimes I wonder why people, like... Anyway, um, so what is your definition of success? Uh, professionally, I think my definition of success is... Um, oh, I think it would be if I'm able to write meaningful stories about relevant world events that cause, that inspire discussions, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than Sometimes you read a story and you're like, wow, I feel like I learned so much and it doesn't inspire any critical thinking because you immediately take the side of one character, quote, in the story. Um, I don't think those are as powerful of stories as the ones that really make you question what side you're on because oftentimes you're not on one side. Um, But yeah, I think being able to write stories like that would be success for me. Mm. Yeah, totally. So do you have a message to our listeners about how to get through this time? Oh, geez. Um, I think my one one is don't ruin your sleep schedule and definitely don't (laughs) download TikTok. Probably. Yeah, that that is a very good message for right now. I've had a lot of, yeah, just like be healthy and don't go overboard with social media. That's that's totally reasonable. 
Well, thank you so much for letting me interview today, Bella. I learned so much, and I'm guessing our listeners did too, about being non-biased and really working through what the newsrooms are having to deal with, like, and then how they need to, you know, modernize a little bit more with all these different people who are so good at all of their different trades. So, yeah, that was really cool. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Of course, yeah. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks so much to Bella for letting me interview her. Now it's time for the break, but don't go away because afterwards we'll share an awesome story of some very cool typewriters. Hi, this is Pippa from the Daybreak Podcast, and I just want to talk to you guys a little bit about a company that me and my friends started late last year. It is called DNM Graphic Novel Library. This is how it works. So, off you go onto our website, which is in a link in the show notes. Make sure to check that out. You can click signing up and choose your subscription type, either standard, which is $8, or premium, which is $13. Fill out a quick form. Um, of course, deposit your money for the month, and then you're done. So, what you get with this subscription is that you can rent out, like, two every week of our hundred or more, like, graphic novels and magazines. They're all super good, and you can find something for every person. Maybe you've not heard of graphic novels before. Maybe you have. It's your your call, whatever kind of graphic novel you want. But you're only allowed to do two a week. Then, if you live in the Benjamin Row neighborhood, we will deliver a graphic novel to your door that you choose. And if you don't, then you can just come and pick it up at our home base. Also, if you come and sign up now, you get 15% off with a special code on our Facebook page that you can check out. Also, one more thing. Um, one graphic novel usually costs like $8.00. So, this is a really good deal because you're getting, like, 16 graphic novels if you did two months for the price of two graphic novels, which is crazy. So, make sure to check it out. If you've never heard of graphic novels, if you have, if you're really into them, this is the thing for you. Remember, it's in the show notes, and how you sign up is you click signing up on our website, and then you click standard or premium, and then you fill out the form. Thanks so much, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Daybreak. This week we have a very special news story to share with you about an orchestra with no brass instruments, woodwinds, or strings in sight. No, this Boston-based orchestra is made up of entirely men and women with fast-tapping fingers, making music on their typewriters. No, you heard that right typewriters. It all started when Tim Devon told his friends in 2004 that he was the director of the Boston Typewriter Orchestra, where there was no such thing. He meant it as a joke, but that got him and his friends thinking that such a thing could be done, and could sound great in the process. They started developing a whole new type of music with the clicks, clacks, and spins a regular typewriter makes, except harmonizing all of them to make a sort of complex beat. After they performed at the Art Beat Festival in Boston, they went on tour around New England. By the way, the whole typewriter can be used for their music, and certain models make different noises as well as making the orchestra sound complete. After that, they even released their own album. So, 
make sure if you're ever in the New England area and you hear some rhythmic tapping around the corner. Stick around to watch the Typewriter Orchestra entertain you with their rhythmic music like never before. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Daybreak. We're your hosts, Pippa Schrader and Bryn Campbell. And this week we had help from John Schrader, our trusty editor, Bryn Campbell, who is an awesome co-host, and from Balladelli Steel, who was our interview. Also, um, I wanted to say just a few words before I let you guys go. So we are talking, me and Bella were talking a little bit about um, the protests that are going on right now. And um, this is just my opinion, but I think it's always very good to educate yourself, as Bella was talking about, about things like systemic racism and just racism in general, which is a very big topic, but um, it's always good to know more about these kinds of things. And with your parents' permission, you can look on sites you trust, or you can just talk to an adult you trust in your life about what's going on right now and learn, learn some new things and try and make the world a better place wherever you go. Okay, that's all for this week. Pippa, signing off. Mm-hmm.